Welcome to How My Country Works with your host, Stephen O'Shea. Next up, in Central Africa, with the capital Bangui, a population of 4.9 million and functioning as a presidential democracy, is the Central African Republic, or CAR. On the 21st of February 2016, the former Prime Minister of the Central African Republic, Faustin Tudora, won the presidency in a multi-round vote. Whilst in many countries this might appear normal, in the CAR this kind of peaceful election is never taken for granted. The country has suffered at least five coups since its independence from the French in 1960, with the latest coming in only 2013. This was driven by Islamic extremists and led to mass killings and international intervention. But how did the Central African nation get to this point? In order to dive a little bit deeper into this and the historical and political climate of the Central African Republic, I'm joined on the show by Louisa Lombard, who is an Associate Professor of Anthropology at Yale University. Louisa, welcome to the show. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Well, we might just dive straight in. So can you tell us a bit about the Central African Republic, as it seems like a really interesting country? It is a really interesting place. And one thing that I really want to wanted to communicate to you and to, to any listeners out there was that the person who should really be doing this interview is a man named Igor Akko. Um, and Igor was a Central African uh, researcher, analyst, um, really just an absolute brilliant guy known by all of his friends as the genius. And Igor passed away uh, last year, um, just a little bit less than a year ago at age 39, leaving behind a one-year-old daughter. And he died from complications of malaria. And, you know, Central African Republic is a really interesting place. It's a very difficult place also. And um, I think we can't lose sight of some of those challenges that people there are facing and the great tragedy that these brilliant minds, people like Igor, um, are no longer with us because they just don't have the kind of health care that they deserve. Absolutely. That's so tragic. Thanks for starting us off like that, Louisa. I agree. It's so important to highlight. But before we get too far down the current makeup of the country, we might just start by going back and looking at what the country was like before colonization in the 1800s. I'm so glad that you phrased the question that way, because one of my pet peeves is when people start African history in the late 1800s, as if things, you know, when the European colonizers arrived, as if there wasn't a lot going on prior to that as well. There was so much going on. And in the lands that we today know as the Central African Republic, there were several processes that were playing out over the course of the 18th and 19th centuries, if we just take that as a sort of starting point. Yeah, perfect. One was that this area was increasingly getting swept into um, trans-Saharan Islamic networks. Um, so there were trading posts that were getting set up in the midst of the um, communities and settlements where people were living in more egalitarian ways. And these trading posts became a kind of network so that the Islamic merchants and scholars could move through this area, bringing, bringing goods and also taking them out and bringing a certain way of looking at the world um, and also having to adapt and incorporate um, some of the, the ways of, of 
working in the world that they were encountering there. At the same time, there was another kind of um, state-making process that was um, at play in this region, including parts of the what is now the southeastern Central African Republic into South Sudan and the Democratic Republic of the Congo, which was the formation of the Azande Empire. Um, and the Azande Empire was a, a state-building process that was... Um, uh, gathering steam in this part of the world um, that became a really a really powerful empire in its own right, and that then was in um, it was was uh, working partly together with and partly um, um, in differentiation from some of these uh, Islamic networks that were a bit more to the north and to the west. That's so interesting, Louisa, as I really don't think that people have these kind of perceptions of pre-colonial Africa but this feels like a hugely vibrant society. So it was an incredibly dynamic kind of social field at this time um, because um, it's an, a really vast area geographically. Um, and it was a place where a lot of people were enjoying quite prosperous lives, um, living in very decentralized kinds of, of ways. Um, when you look at some of the accounts by European um, explorers and, and um, colonizers from the late 1800s, they come in and they say, wow, a lot of these people are a little bit overweight. <laughs> they seem to be doing really well um, economically. Um, that all started to change when some of these um, trading networks um, involvement in daily life became more intense and became more focused on taking people as slaves from this area. Yeah, of course. How does this evolve? First, it was the Trans-Saharan actors who were taking people as slaves. And then it was the Europeans, um, particularly the French, who showed up. And they weren't taking people as slaves. They were very careful and saw themselves as anti-slavery. But they were taking people for forced labor. And what they were doing, in effect, was quite similar um, to what the, the people who were raiding for slaves was. And in fact, the Europeans worked through the um, Trans-Saharan raiders in order to be able to um, capture people and make them, make them work for them. So this area was both an area of refuge where a lot of people were fleeing in order to get away from slave raiders and some of these more coercive state-making processes. And it was also an area where people were coming in to raid um, and to take people. And it was possible that it could be both a source of refuge and a source of, of great danger, in part because it is a really big area. There's lots of land. And there were a lot of people um, but um, but there still was a lot of space um, so that people could could um, could do these these somewhat contradictory things in this in the same big area. That's really interesting. So you have all these different groups trying to secure forced labor and power in the region, but at the same time causing huge disruption. Eventually, though, the French take control and the area becomes a colony in 1880. What impact does this have? It's a few things. Um, one is that what the French tried to do, I mean, we have to think a little bit about the Central African Republic in the context of the French Empire. And it wasn't known as, as CAR at that time. It was known as Ubangishari, which was part of the French Congo, which then became part of, became French Equatorial Africa. 
And there was a little bit of a hierarchy among the colonies in terms of um, which places were seen as the most profitable colonies, which places were seen as the, the best postings that you could get if you were a colonial official. And in that kind of ranking system that they had, the Central African Republic was um, the place that was not bringing in very much revenue and that therefore was really downgraded in their understanding of things. And as a result, the few colonial officials that were there had to try to do a huge amount with very little resources. And the result was a very violent mode of politics. Right, of course. And this violent mode of politics has resonances um, with practices that have been ongoing in the period since the colonial era. So, you know, let me give you an example. You know, the, the, the French colonizers, perhaps they needed people to help them um, build a road or something like that. And they were never going to offer people enough money or any other kind of remuneration to make it worth those people's while to do that. <laughs> and as a result, the only way to get them to do it was to force them and to force them with violence. And often by making spectacular shows of violence um, that would they hoped then cause the other people to be afraid and to do what they were being asked to do. And that aspect of um, having these vast expectations about what a state is supposed to do in an area like this and the kinds of projects that a state is supposed to undertake. These vast expectations with very, very little material means um, to do that. Potential overseers, oversight, any kind of accountability being very far from the place in question. That has been a recipe for, again, for having violence end up be a bigger part of, of politics than I think most people would, would prefer. Yeah, right. So this period of colonization from the French has just had a devastating legacy on the country, even as it emerged as an independent nation in 1960. How did this occur? So in all of the French colonies in Africa, um, you know, there was Guinea that um, went for independence in 1958, but all of the other French colonies got independence at the same time in 1960. Absolutely. We've seen that across a few episodes we've looked at so far. And it's also the case for French Equatorial Africa, as the region containing the CAR was known, right? In the French Equatorial Africa region, I know that there were people who were, you know, visionary um, independence era leaders who were trying to figure out how there could be more cooperation among the, the um, polities of French Equatorial Africa so that hopefully they could help each other and, and move forward. And that's actually part of the origin story of the name of the Central African Republic. Specifically, there was an independence um, leader, a hero called Barthélemy Boganda. And Boganda had the idea that all of these French Equatorial Africa countries should band together in a federation. And they would have some autonomy, but they would also work together. And that this was a way that they could kind of pool their strengths and hopefully become a stronger actor in the world. And so he thought Central African Republic would be a good name because it would fit within this, within this federation. Um, it would be kind of a descriptive name within this federation of, of equatorial African states. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. 
Unfortunately, from Boganda's perspective, that didn't happen. I don't know enough to know whether that would have made things easier for some of these equatorial African um, countries. Um, but what I do know is that it's been a difficult kind of post-independence period. Yeah, because the country has really struggled post-independence to maintain stability and prosper, right? Yes, absolutely. So in the Central African Republic, um, you know, first of all, there's sort of the, the important um, periods in the country's post-independence history. One would be from about 1965 to 1979, which is the period when Jean-Bedel Bokassa was in power. And he took power in a coup and then um, became, um, by the end of his time in power, um, he had described, he, he had dis- termed himself the emperor of the Central African Republic. So his ambitions became grander and grander over time. And he often is looked back on as a combination of a um, brutal and and um, somewhat pathetic kind of a figure, I suppose, by people outside of the country um, because of things that they've seen, like the Werner Herzog film, um, Notes from a Somber Empire, I believe it's called, which is about the kind of legacies of Bokassa in the country. Um, but for cent- a lot of Central Africans, both when Bokassa was in power, particularly the early years, um, and even now, they recognize that Bokassa at least had a vision. He had um, um, sort of dreams for the country. He had an, a vision of how it was going to change and what it was going to do and the mark that it was going to, to make on the world. So then how is it that he loses power? Bokassa was mo- removed from power with, with French um, involvement in 1979. And throughout the 1980s, there were presidents in place who were very strongly supported by France. I mean, France was basically a kind of, um, you know, um, the one uh, there were there were French um, you know colonels who were actually calling the shots in the midst of all of this. Now at the same time during that period, 1970s into 1980s, you had massive economic decline because a lot of the prices for commodities that were being grown in Central Africa and elsewhere in the region were just plummeting absolutely plummeting. And this gets back to some of the arcane details about monetary policy in some of these new countries. Um, But basically, um, the the upshot was that when the prices of these commodities tanked, the effects were even greater than they would have been in places that that hadn't had these sort of weird sort of instruments or ways of doing things that that happened in, in this part of the world. Right, of course. So economy completely crashes um, during the 1980s. And at the same time, with the end of the Cold War, you had donors who started pushing for multi-party democracy and started saying that that was the only way to have a legitimate polity. And so this combination of economic decline um, at the same time as there was a push for multi-party democracy, which made a lot of leaders feel very insecure about their position, um, contributed to a very volatile mix, which in the end, through a variety of twists and turns, um, turned into a more violent mode of politics, where people felt like one way to get heard was if you were in the military to start a mutiny, if you were in a rural part of the area of the of the country to start a rebellion and an armed group. And mm, things have kind of um, gone on from there. Wow, right. And so how does this legacy affect the country today? For the last 20, more than 20 years, well, the last 20 years, there have been armed groups operating in the Central African Republic. 
Um, some of these have been armed groups that were directed towards the Central African capital that were trying to take power in the capital. Some of these have been a bit more mercenary in the way that they are operating, either as highway bandits or as people who are involved in regulating um, uh, cattle herders who are moving through this part of, uh, of the world. And this tendency toward a kind of militarization and um, a kind of fracturing of politics in into these armed groups has unfortunately really gotten worse over this period of time. Yeah, right. What's been particularly troubling to watch and difficult to watch has been to see how, although in the period 2013 to 2022, almost 10 years, amazingly enough. Um, although there's been a lot of international attention to Central African Republic in the form of peacekeeping missions, in the form of foreign aid, in the form of humanitarian aid, and all of these kinds of things, some of the fundamental dynamics that were underlying, have been underlying the conflict throughout have not really been changed. So specifically, the fact that you have a Central African government that sits in the country's capital and that really doesn't control very much other than that capital and access to the donors and, um, you know, their, what, what, what they're doing. Um, and then armed groups that are controlling most of the country's territory um, and um, that are in many cases making things very difficult for people. Um, and then this huge humanitarian presence um, that is there that is um, providing for the bare subsistence of a lot of Central Africans, but not doing that much to transform what is a very, very difficult life for so many people. Yeah, absolutely. But it's a country with so much promise that hopefully it can someday realise. Thanks for bringing us up to date, Louisa. Before we let you go, though, could you please tell us about a holiday, festival or celebration that is unique to the Central African Republic? So there are two that I want to tell you about. Um, one is the National Day, which occurs on the 1st of December. And the first part of the celebrations on this, this National Day are parades. Um, and the parades will happen in small towns. They'll happen in the capital city. Um, it is, if you're, if you're not used to the weather, they tend to be a bit hot. <laughs> um, but they're quite a big deal with lots of people participating, school kids participate, and it's a, it's a, um, a kind of gala event. And if you happen to be in the capital of Bangui on the 1st of December, then you can go down to the Ubangi River, which is this big river that runs through the side of, of town, and they do pirogue races, so big um, wooden canoe races. And uh, Usually, when you're down by the river, you see people fishing um, in these canoes, but they're they're sort of the size of you know you can have a few people in these in these um, daily use canoes. But the ones that get used on this national day are enormous and accommodate you know twenty twenty five people who all get in there and start paddling. Um, in order to, to win. And often, you know, companies will put in a boat, um, people will band together and get together a boat. And it's really impressive and um, really a great thing to watch. Yeah, it sounds awesome. And then the other is that um, a very important holiday in Central African Republic is Mother's Day. And Mother's Day, it changes a bit when it is because it depends a little bit. It has to be at a time when people's salaries are getting paid, people's civil servant salaries are getting paid because Mother Day, Mother's Day requires some, some outlay of cash. But usually it's in May or June. And um, it is 
A day for the mothers, as the name would suggest, it originates in the period when Bokasa um, was the leader of the Central African Republic, so between 65 and 79, and he had a very pro-natalist policy. He wanted um, Central Africans to have more babies because they have this huge country with actually a very small population in it. So he wanted to value mothers and their role in society. And the occasion has kind of morphed since then to become a classic um, example of what us anthropologists call rituals of rebellion. And what happens in a ritual of rebellion is that all of the kind of prevailing social norms get overturned um, just for this one day. And so on this one day, um, women and men shift and change roles. So the men are doing, you know, and, and I should I should preface this by saying that there are a lot of women who are are working outside of their home in Central African Republic. You know, gender roles are are not um, not so straightforward as I, I'm maybe seeming to pre to present them, but there are nevertheless certain ideas about well, women women in general don't just go out to bars and stay there all night and that kind of thing. But on Mother's Day they do. Um, they go out and it's the women who get to go out and just drink and dance and be with their friends and um, you know not think about looking after the kids or any of those those kinds of things. Um, and so that is a very memorable um, kind of holiday that is I think. The, the, the way that it is celebrated is, um, you know, a distinctive thing in, in Central African Republic. <laughs> that sounds amazing. Thanks so much for those two celebrations and for chatting with us today about the Central African Republic. My pleasure. Take care. You take care as well. I think that's a perfect place to end the show. Thanks so much to my guest, Louisa Lombard. Join us next time where we'll be discussing another African nation, that of Chad whose leadership has remained very much a family affair for the last 30 years. As always, please do rate us on your podcast app and recommend us to any friends that have a hankering for political knowledge. Follow us on Instagram or Twitter at How My Country Works for extra insights and facts. And there you can message us around anything else you'd like to know about the Central African Republic or any other country. This podcast is produced by Stephen O'Shea and sound editing is by Luke Dimsey. See you next time and remember to keep asking How My Country Works. <laughs>